Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. Coming up in this episode, I'm in conversation with Jonas Baltrushaitis, who is the editor-in-chief of a new journal called Sustainability Science and Technology. He talks about the UN's 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development and the role that scientists and engineers have in achieving these goals. Jonas also talks about his own work in catalysis and the surface science tools that he uses in his lab at Lehigh University in the U.S., But first, I'm very pleased to say that we have an interview with a member of the team that won Physics World's 2023 Breakthrough of the Year Award for developing a new technology that allowed a paralyzed person to walk. Here is Physics World's Tammy Freeman in conversation with the first author on the paper that describes this incredible achievement. At the close of each year, the Physics World team selects its top 10 breakthroughs of the year, chosen from the hundreds of research updates published on the website that year across all fields of physics. We also choose one study, the one that impressed us the most, as the overall winner each year. And for 2023, the Physics World Breakthrough of the Year was awarded to a Swiss-French team who developed a digital bridge between the brain and the spinal cord that enabled a person with paralysis to stand and walk naturally. When tested on a 38-year-old man with a spinal cord injury, the system enabled him to regain intuitive control over his leg movements, enabling him to stand, walk, climb stairs and traverse complex terrains. I'm very pleased to be joined today down the line by the first author of this study, Henry Lorak. Henry is head of the Brain-Spine Interface Unit at NeuroRestore, a research and innovation centre that's part of EPFL and Lausanne University Hospital in Switzerland. Welcome to the podcast, Henry, and congratulations on this remarkable achievement. Thank you very much. Thank you for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here, yes. So... First question, what are the challenges of developing new technologies to overcome paralysis caused by spinal cord injuries? So in the field of a spinal cord injury, there is currently no treatment after a lesion of the spinal cord. Uh, despite initial recovery, basically, you have no solution for a patient to recover voluntary motor control. And the, the challenge here was to develop a new technology that linked the intention to move for a patient and the stimulation of his muscles below the injury. So when you are healthy, your brain sends commands through your spinal cord to the different muscles, and that's what enables you to control your legs and to be able to stand and to walk and to make complex movements. And so once the lesion is here, the communication between the brain and the muscles is disrupted. And so to create this this digital bridge, this solution, we had to develop a new technology that could record at the level of the brain the intention of the patient to move and at the same time to be able to stimulate the spinal cord below the lesion to elicit uh, voluntary movements. 
Okay, so you developed this system, the, this digital bridge, and so it involves two separate implants. So that's one in the brain and one on the spinal cord. So, so how did the combination of these two devices provide such an impressive result? So we needed exactly the technology to be able to, to record and decode the intention of the patient to move. So this with a cortical implant that we placed over the dura mater, over the sensory motor area of the brain, which is the area that is activated when you think about making a movement. We recorded over 64 different electrodes, and each of these electrodes provided us a signature, electrical signature of the brain, while the patient uh, intended the movement. And uh, through an algorithm, we could predict, after training, uh, what was the probability of different movements, like flexing the hip, extending the knee, or flexing the ankle. We computed for each movement what was the probability to do the movement. And then we linked this probability to a second implant that was on the spinal cord that was stimulating the roots of the spinal cord that projected to the different muscles of the leg. And so for each electrode of the second implant, we could elicit a different muscle activity, so linking the intention to flex the left hip, for example, to a given uh, electrode pattern that could provide the given movement. Wow, that sounds great. Um, I mean, and how easy was it for the subject in the study to start using this um, interface? So the, the patient was paralyzed for many years before entering the study, so for more than 10 years. And so he had to basically remember what was to to control his muscles. So there was a training period where we asked the participant to imagine making the different movements, which was not easy sometimes uh, because he had forgotten some of the movements. And with this training, we could pick up the signature, the brain signature that was linked to the different movement intentions. And so in a few days, basically, the patient could have a reliable motor intention that could be uh, translated into stimulation. So to be able to use the full system, we could train the decoder and the stimulation paradigm in a few, a few days. Um, and he, he continued using this for, for quite a while. Is he still using the system? Is this like a long-term solution for him? Exactly. So by going into such an invasive protocol, I mean, having two implants uh, that were invasively uh, placed, uh, it's a big commitment for the patient. So we really wanted this solution to be viable in the long term. And the patient still uses the system at home. Uh, we have regular uh, sessions with him, like remote session. He lives in the Netherlands. So we connect uh, remotely from Switzerland to his, uh, his computer, basically. He's able to, to start the system by himself. And uh, we monitor his progress over time. Brilliant. And he's still, still happy and still using it to move around OK? Yes, yes. Yeah. He, he still uses it, yes. So Great. I think, yeah, it's one of the big challenges to, to make this technology really usable in the everyday life. And that's the, the next challenge, yes. Yeah. So have you tested the system on anybody else yet or are you planning to do so? 
Actually, yes, we have started to test the system uh, in a new patient to restore upper limb function. So now we have one participant who has a similar technology, an implant over the brain and an implant over the spinal cord, but this time to control uh, movement of the arm and hand. So this time the spinal cord implant is placed on the cervical area where the, the roots project to the upper limb muscles. And we use exactly the same uh, paradigm to have motor intention of a tetraplegic patient to guide the movement of his arm. Excellent. And then this, this motor intention is, is basically so the, the user just sort of thinks of wanting to move their arms or their legs and then your system sort of creates this movement for them. Yes, exactly. So this uh, the decoding part is linked to the brain implant, and we ask the patient a few repetitions of the movement intention, so a movement that is not able to generate himself. So we ask him to really focus on a specific intention, such as this time extend the extend the arm, like provide an elbow extension or open the hand, close the hand. We ask him to repeat this intention uh, several times and we calibrate our decoder that is then linked to the spinal cord stimulation. And the spinal cord stimulation can provide these, uh, these selective movements. And so in this way, the patient regains this ability to voluntarily control the hand movements. Brilliant. And when do you think this could become available as a clinical treatment? So, yes, that's the, the next challenge is to have this therapy disseminated and to a larger population. Of course, now we have two patients implanted. We want to go to 100 patients or to 1,000 patients. And there is a clear need because no therapeutic solution exists for these patients. Uh, so what is the challenge is to make the technology miniaturized, easy to use, robust, and this is the role of a, of a company, a medical, uh, medical company. On our side, we are uh, pushing the first steps, making the proof of concept that this link between the brain and the spinal cord can restore the, the voluntary movements. Now we need more investments and a, a company to take the lead to make a large cell clinical trial, miniaturize the device, and uh, provide it to the market. Excellent. So, I mean, you, you are looking to do another clinical trial. and, and... Yes. Uh, right now, we, we are planning more participants with the same technology. And in parallel, we collaborate with a, a startup, Onward Medical, who is taking the lead uh, to, to push these uh, commercial developments. Yes. Brilliant. Well, that, that sounds fantastic. I, I look forward to seeing how this all develops. Well, Thank you very much for speaking to us today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Nine years ago, the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development was adopted by all member states of the United Nations. The agenda includes 17 sustainable development goals, ranging from affordable and clean energy to an end to poverty and hunger.
To talk about how science and technology is helping us to achieve these goals, I'm joined down the line from Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, by Jonas Baltrushaitis, who is a professor of chemical and biomolecular engineering at Lehigh University. Jonas is also the editor-in-chief of a new journal called Sustainability Science and Technology from IOP Publishing, which also brings you Physics World. Hi, Jonas. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, and thanks for, for having me, Hamish. So, Jonas, can you give us a definition of sustainability in the context of the new journal? Well, to this extent, um, I suppose we follow the uh, conventional um, description of sustainability, where we want to achieve specific goals in the future without jeopardizing any current existence and, and well-being, which is, a, which is a difficult task, to say the least. Uh, but uh, in a sense... In a sense, uh, we're going to be um, entertaining submissions from sustainability, science, and technology. So we want to cover um, uh, uh, cover the field comprehensively, if you will. Um, and uh, hopefully we're going to discover new ways to define sustainability as a result. And, and can you give us a flavor for, for the types of research um, that you're hoping to publish in the journal? Certainly. Um, you know, we, we uh, including myself and the editorial staff, had, you know, some time to think about it. And uh, um, um, the scope um, the scope of the journal was... Uh, very interesting concept to sort of uh, um, to synthesize on the paper first. You know, one thing to to remember is that this is a very rapidly developing field that is already full of uh, journals. Right? You can think of ACS journals, RSC journals, even MDPI journals that work in this area. So we still wanted to be all-inclusive and equitable, which we probably talk about a little bit later in publishing, how we publish uh, sustainability research. But then we want to separate ourselves in the field. And when, when I conceptualized the, the scope, um, I realized that most of the journals in the field uh, focus on specific area of sustainability. Uh, the common mistake or, or error or fallacy in this field is that um, Sustainable is often called green. So there are even journals that you know talk of, you know about green chemistry or green this or that. Now, green is most likely always sustainable, but sustainable is not necessarily green. So, so you know you can think of um, you can think of a biomass used to produce specific chemicals, right? Uh, you know, I've I've had. Uh, I taught in back in the days an example of making, I think, acrylic acid, uh, which is a com commodity chemical. And uh, if you think about making it sustainably, I'm sorry, in a green fashion from some biomass, uh, uh, 
it takes a huge land area just to grow, you know, biomass to to get some fixed amount of acrylic acid. It takes much less effort and money and probably carbon footprint to make this acrylic acid from petroleum products, right? So what is green is not necessarily sustainable. So with this in mind, we sort of thought of the areas in terms of planetary boundaries, right? So, so how we, we think of natural resources uh, that essentially govern uh, uh, safe operating space for humanity, right? And, and everything included. And um, so that includes sustainable production and consumption of goods, um, distribution of goods and services. So, so you know, uh, one thing is to make something uh, somewhere across the world, but the other thing is uh, logistically, planet, um, supply chain management, systems engineering, you know, how how we can use all these tools to transport these things there, right? So so we want to include some of these things that that um, may be also attributed to, you know, clean production or, or even clean transport. And then another thing is, you know, I, I always wanted to include under this sustainability umbrella uh, things that that are critical um, uh, amongst the, the, the sustainability developmental goals you mentioned, SDGs, right, such as poverty and human well-being, right? Directly, it's, it's rather difficult to fit those until, uh, under the chemistry and technology and materials umbrella, right? Directly, it's very difficult. Indirectly, they are crucial, Right, they are the uh, they are the you know they are the focus of they should be the focus of these technologies, the focus of these processes and the products, right? That 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 should drive the reduction in poverty, for example, improvement in educational quality, uh, gender inequality, and other things uh, within the communities and even the countries. So so you know I pressed hard really on the on the uh, uh, journal staff that. In some shape and form, we have to include those since they are big part of SDGs, right? So by doing that, we sort of shaped it and expanded it. Now we'll need to be careful how we implement this, right? But but I think I think we we comprehensively uh, define these these uh, sustainability aspects of our journal. So so is it right to say that when you were you were planning the journal you you really were looking at the 2030 agenda as um uh, I don't know a, a template or or as inspiration for the, the how you would uh, evolve the journal and what sort of science and uh, technology you would publish that, that 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 is precisely correct i mean every journal in the, in a nutshell uh, it, and every editor in chief, they uh, they they have to have their own visions for the journal, um, and uh, that vision has to be rooted in something, in some philosophy, in some concept, right, in some idea. And uh, you know, one thing is um, try to reinvent the uh, the concepts. The other one is really to base your 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 journal on existing sound well acknowledge well-accepted concepts such as such as the, the UN uh, Sustainable Development Goals. So, so we, we had it easy, right? We had those goals for us, you know, all along, right? And now we, we took it upon ourselves to fully 
and sort of equitably address them all, right? So, so my, as I said, my, my first goal was not to confine ourselves to the concept of, for example, green chemistry, right? Uh, that's, a, that's a very sort of specific example. But uh, expand uh, comprehensively into SD, SDG. So, so you you are correct. That's what that's we did it on purpose, purposefully. And, and of course, um, you know, this agenda is not going to succeed without um, input from government and industry. Um, will, will there be a place in the journal for contributions from these sectors, or will most of your authors be scientists and engineers? I always, I always think of it as, as in terms of st stakeholders, right? And stakeholders, to me, again, it's a nebulous term that, that again, uh, shifts and evolves with, with time. And um, uh, there, 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 there should be uh, stakeholders from local communities. In the U.S., for example, we have very strong presence of, of uh, um, federal agencies, you know, that fund specific initiatives. You think of EPA, you think of even Department of Energy, you think of, of um, you know, NIH and others. They are also stakeholders that can affect dramatically the science itself and its implementation. So, so yes, uh, I think that, that we will have a lot of space for policymaking work. We will have a lot of space for um, um, uh, work that shapes research, future research, right? Uh, in terms of of uh, of uh, where we should go, you know. So, so to arrive to most of the goals in, by twenty thirty. So, so I think in terms of stakeholding, we will have a, a very strong uh, input. Now, how are we going to attract those those um, um, uh, 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 researchers, it's not trivial, right? It's it's much simpler to conceptualize something in the lab, and you know synthesize it and and publish it. Now uh, uh, these bigger initiatives they are very difficult to 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 write, and they always involve lots of people, and they usually come out as these obscure reports somewhere on the internet that you know people then refer to. Uh, so I hope that the journal can serve to a certain extent uh, uh, as a as a venue for for these these conclusive reports roadmaps by bigger stakeholders, right? So beyond faculty labs, beyond collaborative research. And Jonas, I wanted to ask you a bit about your own research. Um, uh, some of it focuses on heterogeneous catalytic processes. Can you? Describe what these processes are and um, what's the relevance of your research to creating sustainable technologies? Well, Hamish, that, that's, a, that's a, a theme I could talk for, for hours. So you are asking for, <laughs> for trouble because I can, you know, I can never stop. Um, you know, my, my, my research uh, sort of evolved with time. Um, uh, by, by background, I'm a chemical engineer. Uh, after graduation, I actually worked in <clears throat> large uh, fertilizer plant uh, back in Lithuania. So I sort of I understand the um, the problems that that face these uh, uh, key industries, 
let's see, you know, fertilizer industry with CO2 emissions and so on. So I understand them at, at, at a global level, right? And how difficult it is to implement some, some improvements or, or even conceptual changes. And then I went on to grad school and I did my PhD in physical chemistry of all the sciences. And, you know, so I was looking at surface science and surface interactions with absorbing molecules from the environmental science perspective. So, you know, in grad school, I sort of come to look at the same problems on only on the molecular scale. So, so I sort of, my, my research since spans this, this area and, uh, uh, you know, you can see I'm very active in heterogeneous catalysis, electrocatalysis, all the way to process design, life cycle impacts and so on. And so I think that's what distinguishes my research a little bit. And, um, but on the molecular scale, on the catalysis scale, uh, we tackle the problems that that are um, that are fundamentally interesting. First of all, you know it has to be fundable by somebody, um, <clears throat> but also bear direct relevance to sustainability. So, so some of the research we pursued in the past four years, and it, it actually got refunded recently by National Science Foundation Catalysis Program. Uh, it was on oxidative coupling of methane. Now, it sounds like a trivial and irrelevant uh, problem, but it's not. Um, methane um, has been and probably will be for the next decade a, a, a vehicle, a source uh, uh, of energy and hydrocarbons for us to transition from fully a fossil fuel-based economy to whatever whatever is in the future. It's very, very difficult to tell what, what that's going to be. Hopefully, it's hydrogen economy. So, so methane is a is a major component of natural gas, or methane is a major component of natural gas. May, methane is also a major component of biogas, especially in Europe. Now you have these biogas facilities that produce electricity, that produce steam, right? And they do that by you know anaerobic digestion of virtually any biomass, and and the product is 50-50 you know carbon dioxide and methane. Technically, so so that methane is is you know greenish, right? If you will, so so there are many ways of making methane. Now, folks are making methane by electrochemically, <clears throat> electrochemically by uh, reducing uh, um, carbon dioxide, also. Right? So that there is there is many outlets of uh, of of methane and and many uses of methane because we have existing infrastructure. So you know, so my my research is. Addressing one of the biggest problems of, of methane um, uh, methane molecule activation, right? It's a symmetric molecule. It's four CH bonds, so all bonds are, are equivalent. So it's very difficult to activate a single bo single bond selectively, right? That's why the, this, the, the research has been and never really reached its potential in, in activating methane to make methanol, right? It's very difficult to break one bond but not other three, right? So we are trying to tackle similar problems and and uh, uh, convert methane into uh, higher value products such as ethane or ethylene, right? So we, we try to make CC bond coupling in there um, uh, by supplying small amount of oxygen and precisely tuned heterogeneous catalysts, right? Why? Because then methane, which is very difficult to transport, you cannot liquefy it efficiency, eff efficiently, right? You cannot, you know, so, so people flare it in the U.S. somewhere in, in North Dakota. People burn it instead of transporting, right? 
Why? Because you know you can transport oil with a bucket, but methane you cannot, right? So, so we are developing these concepts, these technologies of methane activation and upgrading into value-added molecules, ethane, ethylene, and then you can then take ethylene and you know make benzene out of it, make butadiene out of it for the green tires. Many many good things, right? So that, that you know, so we are we are looking at these catalysts, right? That operate at seven, eight hundred degrees Celsius, very difficult conditions. They tend to segregate, they tend to change their selectivity as a function of time, right? So we are trying to investigate using spectroscopic methods how these catalysts evolve, how this methane activation takes place, and how it how it changes from selective to unselective. And I also think, Jonas, you're working on a project that combines green hydrogen production with direct CO2 capture. C- can you tell us a bit about that? We work in, in we have two projects on that. One is a courtesy of Department of Energy, uh, um, uh, EFRC. It's, it's, it's a center for for <clears throat> uh, materials for energy evolution. So we are we are looking at um, uh, how these catalytic materials, in this case electrocatalytic materials, evolve, uh, degrade, and uh, um, uh, restore their uh, activity with time or, or degrade completely. So, so as part of that, we look at uh, sort of conventional oxygen evolution catalysts, um, hydrogen evolution catalysts, uh, nickel moly, nickel itself, and, and how, how they behave you know, in aqueous solutions, under alkaline conditions, under extreme conditions, right? And whether we can stabilize them, we can learn something where we can make them stable under those conditions. Now, um, the second project just funded recently is also by the Department of Energy uh, with, with colleagues in Arizona State and, and Oregon State universities. We actually proposed a little bit more practical approach to carbon dioxide activation, right? So we're trying to use very well-known technology of solid oxide uh, fuel cells or solid oxide electrochemical cells um, with direct air capture, which is not trivial to do because, because you know, you have diluted CO2 streams in air that need to be absorbed. And um, trying to uh, um, um, generate what's called syngas, so a mixture of carbon monoxide and hydrogen in SOE, SOECs, and then feed that mixture to downstream reaction for, for, for methanol synthesis. And methanol is, is one of those commodity chemicals that is made in very large amounts, and you can make anything from methanol. So that project just started, and we really want to look at the integration of all bits and pieces, right? Because they are very dissimilar. You can imagine that, that direct air capture is just a column that sits in air with some, with some fan blowing into it. It absorbs soak CO2, and then at some point, it, you know, it needs either, you know, strip it somehow and release it. That stream then, you know, it's quite complex already, and it goes into the SOEC. That thing operates at high temperatures. You know, it, it, there, is, there is solid electrolyte that, that def, you know, where, where uh, ions diffuse through. And then that goes into conventional column where you have to separate, where you have to do some maybe ratio adjustment. Very interesting concept of very different pieces, right? But ultimately, it combines CO2, it combines water to make methanol, right? Whether that's economically feasible, I guess that's the, the, the question we need to address. 
And um, I, years ago, many years ago, I, I worked in a, in a surface science lab, and I've noticed that you use surface science techniques in your research. So I'm very interested to, to hear about some of them. Can, can you describe the, the techniques that you use and what they tell you about catalytic processes? Oh, certainly. That, that's, a, that's, a, that's a remarkable question. So, you know, indeed, uh, uh, we, we use lots of surface science techniques. And, uh, you know, one of the things we use very heavily is X-ray photoelectron spectroscopy. You know, so XPS is um, a key technique because um, not only can it tell us surface composition it can tell these 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 subtle changes in oxidation states and chemical binding, and so on and so on. And uh, historically, XPS, I suppose, it's an ultra high vacuum technique. It's probably you know. Now, with with the with the existence of synchrotron, you know, the high energy beams of X rays, um, uh, these near ambient pressure methods evolved. You know, in the past ten or fifteen years. Where where you can still get a signal. I mean, normally your signal goes down if if you don't have the right pressure, the, the right vacuum in there. But again, with these with these advancements, differential pumping, for example, and and other other tools and tricks, you can measure uh, XPS spectra in the presence of reactive gases, which puts which adds just whole different dimension to the physics of it, to the chemistry of it, right? And especially to these catalysts where where reactions are surface-based, right? So, so we have at Lehigh, we have one of few uh, specs instruments um, that operates at near ambient pressure. So, I believe it can go up to 20 millibars of pressure, which is a lot, right? And then the stage can be heated as all UHV instruments, you know, up to 600 degrees. And with that range, you already approach the conditions that become relevant. To, to the catalytic measurement. It's still not one bar, right? It's still not overpressure of 10 bars, right? But you you can investigate specific uh, sort of model catalyst, I suppose, under these conditions. So, so you know, we've, um, <clears throat> in the past year or so, what we did to that extent, we focused very heavily with colleagues in UK, um, um, surface science community, on processing of complex XPS data, right? You know, XPS is not trivial, right? You have many, many, you know, final state effects, satellites, you have, you know, various offsets that need to be accounted for, right? So we 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 have been working very heavily on just data processing, data interpretation methods of XPS. So we we're looking at, you know, use expanding the use of principal component analysis, for example, for very complex thin films. So so series of recent publications of ours is on titanium, on you know, native titanium films on titanium foil, native iron oxide films on iron foil, right? So we we can we can gently sputter it or we can alter the composition with, with very gentle helium beams, for example. And we 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 use these mathematical methods. So for example with Nir Farley from Cas XPS who is a uh, who you know who has a software on XPS data processing? We look at this information and we try to make sense of it, and we try to sort of take out the user uh, any user derived arbitrariness, right? Because users tend to think of their data and they tend to interpret the XPS data the way they 
they understand it, right? We develop these data processing methods that largely take out uh, 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 operator out of data interpretation. So wow, that 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 sounds really interesting. And are they, so they, this um, technique of, of of doing these surface science methods with with ambient um, gas in the chamber is that something that that you've developed, or is is this sort of a general technique that's been developed um, around the world? It it's a general te- technique that has been up and coming again. Um, in, in in my view, the the you know it originated you know some. Some, I mean, it was, it was, it has been around for a while, but, but probably the, um, you know, the developments in just instrumentation, right, led to its more accessible existence, right? And people have been doing the UHV surface science for a long time. Uh, you know, I face the problem where, where I, I do the chemical reaction in my, re- my reactor, and then I stop the reaction. I take the sample out. I expose it to ambient air. I put it into the you know pumping chamber in the XPS. I vacuum it to ten to minus ten you know uh, uh, tor right, and then I analyze it, and then I try to infer something right about my rea- catalytic system from the information I obtain on this pumped sample right. And it, there will always been a stretch, and when I review these papers, I see this gap in the information where people try to infer something right. Uh, I, I think that's what. Uh, spurred development in recent years of these instruments. So, so no, they they've been they've been around and they you know they are commercial now. Uh, so you know we use Specs instrument, but I'm sure I'm sure there are other. Um, pretty much every manufacturer now has their own version of these ambient pressure instruments. Now, now the trick is that it becomes many many times much more difficult to acquire reasonable data. Your signal goes down. You need to you need to be mindful so nothing leaks or you'll destroy your your main chamber and so on and so on. so so it becomes a little bit of a art of surface science in addition to the science of the surface science. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I as I remember, there was certainly a, a great deal of art to the surface science that we certainly. were doing. I suppose it, it was still about is. 30, still 30 years ago now. Well, thanks. Thanks, Jonas. Thanks for talking about uh, the journal and also uh, a little bit about your research as well. Um, the journal Sustainability Science and Technology will open for submissions in January 2024, and you can find more about the journal on the IOP Science website. Thanks again for being on the podcast, Jonas, and all the best for the new journal and your research. My pleasure. Have a good day. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Jonas Beltrushaitis, Henri Lorac, and Tammy Freeman for joining me today. And a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. We'll be back again next week when I'll be in conversation with the co-founder and CEO of a startup company that uses atomic defects in diamond to create a sensor that will be launched into space to map Earth's magnetic field. But until then, do check out the latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast. Host Andrew Glester chats with the atomic physicist and author Chad Orzel about laser cooling and the revolution in physics that it brought about. 
That episode is called Radiant Chills, The Revolutionary Science of Laser Cooling. And you can listen to it on the Physics World website or at your favorite podcast provider. Physics World.